Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 97. This week, we talk with Matt Long about the Pegasus mission and getting IoT into space, falsehoods about phone numbers, and please scan my towel. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week we have Matt Long. He's a technical evangelist in DX and co-founder of the Pegasus Mission. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. Nice being here. Yeah. Carl, what's going on? So last week I put out on Twitter a Twitter poll asking if you guys would like to maybe see some video mm-hmm. of the podcast in addition to the audio. And we got some mixed results. It was a little bit closer than I thought. 58% say keep the audio pure. Mm-hmm. And 42% said video all around. So I was, I, you know, honestly, at first I was thinking like everybody was going to say that they wanted video, but then I, I thought about it. I mean, if you look at my own like podcast habits, I, I rarely go out there and watch any podcast video. Yeah. So, so I guess in hindsight, the results make sense. Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, the reason why we asked this is, you know, we are making, we constantly reevaluating what we're doing and, you know, we put the podcast out on channel nine, for instance, we have access to do that. And that requires video. So we just put it out with a still frame of our logo, but you know, we're thinking, Hey, you know, it might be nice to actually get video out there. Mm-hmm. So we are just like, Hey, what, what do you guys want? We're going to go to our current listeners first. And you know what? As of now, I think that we should probably deprioritize the thought of doing video at yeah. least until we're ready for it. Yeah. Basically this, this, we, I was kind of in a hurry just to try it. And now I'm just, I'll probably just try it. I'll probably be opportunistic, right? If there's like the perfect opportunity to try video, I'll try it. But I, I want to make sure that we don't, uh, screw up the audio quality. One of the reasons that we haven't started audio or started video is because I do, I, I do things like truncate silence in the audio and you can't do that in video. So I think the, the video version would actually be longer and more boring. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's things like that that we're trying to work out, but, uh, we don't need to dwell on it. Uh, so who do we have for the Infragistics ultimate winner of the week? So this week, I'm not even going to try this. It's C-S-N-A-Z-E-L-L. He replied to us on our website uh, about the show when we had Mads Torgensen on talking about C-sharp. And he talked about how he liked using tuples already. Um, kind of when we were talking about the wire format that me and you were excited about, Jason, kind of how he was against it. And you had a little conversation going back and forth. Yep. And the one thing I did think that was a, a little interesting to talk about, you know, he said that he, he's not in favor of doing something just because Swift does. And I actually went back because I remember something vaguely about that, but I couldn't remember what it was. I went back and that's when we were talking about putting emoji as oh. <laughs> identifiers. And, and you know, you know, I don't think you should do something just because somebody else does something. But, you know, like we were talking on the show about how like a lot of the functional concepts – as a whole, we're gaining steam and popularity. If you just kind of look at trends and you're like, you know, hey, you know, this is trending mm-hmm. and it still fits within the core philosophy of the language, you might as well do it. 
Well, I just and, and, I see well, it as free research is what yeah. it comes down to. Well, well, for me, when on this particular topic about like uh, having the Unicode characters, I see it less useful for me. You know, yeah, you could do the pile of poo sign in the middle of your code. But if I'm an international developer, you know, I have a language that used, you know, you know, different alphabets you know, like Cyrillic or some language with diacritics or something. Um, then I can actually program in a way that's a little bit more familiar to me. Oh, I'm just imagining the company now that's totally going to abuse this because what they're going to do, they'd be like, oh, we want to be, you know, inclusive of everybody. So we're not going to use any particular characters. We'll just use emoji for all variable <laughs> things, you know, like, like it'll be, it'll be like a, a you know, a, a good gesture, but in, in practice, it will be a horrible, horrible idea. <laughs> yeah. So either way, you know, we, we really appreciate your, uh, your feedback, however you pronounce your username there. And if you would like to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on Facebook, iTunes, and Stitcher. We really love those five-star iTunes reviews. <laughs> and also, just as a note, there's only a couple episodes left for our swag bag getaway. So <laughs> email us, uh, send us a link to your SoundCloud or however you want to get us your feedback for that swag bag competition. We are finalizing some of the stuff that goes in it. So, yep. It's gotta be an audio clip and it will absolutely be worth it. Um, it just, just to kind of prove that it's worth it. Basically everything that uh, you're going to get in there, Carl and I are getting as well. So basically everything we want is what we're including in that bag. <laughs> so if so you, you have know good taste, you're going to be excited. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about that. So yeah, send us those audio clips. Okay. Let's get into the news. So the first one here, make HTML great again. So, so I thought this was a political thing at first, but it's, well, I guess it sort of is. It is political. So political slash technical. So for those of you outside the U.S., it is obviously the uh, you know the U.S. is getting ready for the presidential elections, and there's a podcast out there that what they did is they evaluated all of the candidates' sites, and it came away with some interesting observations. So, like for example, the the ones that seem to be doing better in the polls have a really custom-made CMS, mm -hmm. whereas a lot of the ones that seem to be struggling or, or have already dropped out generally use WordPress. So, you know, it just shows that, you know, hey, if you have the the funding to do it and you have a good platform, a, as in CMS, you know, you're not, you know, that that's a, seems to be a takeaway that you're going to do better. Yeah, and one of the coolest things I actually saw in here, so I did one of the sites... First, I'll give you one that I thought was really lame. And I'm not even going to name the candidate because I, I don't want to get into that. Um, there was one in here. They basically had a secret message that was just a real terrible. So it's got the candidate's name and then it says 2016 and it's in like ASCII art. Um, and then it's got like their, their saying. And <laughs> it's just, it's so sad. But then um, if you look at one of the other ones, um, this one has a, basically a secret message if you, you know, right click and do view source and it's got kind of, you know, ASCII art again, which is, which is, you know, lame again, but, um, it says, um, get out the vote and get is get like the source control. So like, I think that's pretty, that's really cool. And then it actually has, um, um, there's like a link in here to a hackathon. So it's like, you know, okay, so if you are geeky enough to, to view source, then you actually get like, you know, geeky information and you actually get like a geeky place to go. And it's like, okay, thank you. Like that, that actually makes sense. You know, it shouldn't just be like, 
you know, you have ads on your page and then you put ads in your HTML. Like that's, that's just really lame. But I, I thought that was just kind of a cool touch. So yeah, it looks like if you have money, you get a, you get a night, you can buy yourself a nice site and buy yourself an election basically. Um, is that seems to be the correlation there. Well, now you can think about voting for an emoji, right? So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, okay. Next one. Falsehoods programmers believe about phone numbers. I haven't seen this one. What is this, Carl? No. So in the past we've, we've seen one of these things that are like falsehoods programmers believe about dates and times. And then, and this is kind of a, a take on it. And, you know, it really gets you thinking that how, how little you know about certain domains and how mm-hmm. certain, you know, assumptions that you make, um, that like a phone number can uniquely identify an individual. Well, you know, how many people share phones? I mean, all of my kids share a phone number, whereas me and my wife each have our own mobile number. Mm. Well, and landlines, you know, yeah. for, for the kids out there, those were, you know, like a phone that was like mounted on the wall. Uh, they weren't wireless. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it, you know, one of those that really caught me off guard is no prefix of a valid phone number can be a valid phone number. In certain countries, you could have a valid phone number, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. And and that'll dial someone. But if you also do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, that'll also dial someone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm just looking through these here. All valid phone numbers become your country. And also an assumption phone numbers are always written in ASCII, essentially numbers. Yeah. But in, in Egypt, they use their own native digits. And the poo emoji? But <laughs> just every news story is about emoji now. <laughs> hey, if Swift can do it, then phone numbers can do it. That's all I have to say. Uh, okay. Should we move on to the next one here? Yeah. Uh, Microsoft Azure and Amazon web services. So I, I know there, uh, there's been quite a few people to make comparisons between what Amazon and AWS offers. Who, who was the first Carl? I don't know who was the first, but you also did it. I think you copied somebody. I was the first. No, so oh, okay, okay. So somebody, somebody did it for AWS, and I copied them and did it for Azure. Yeah, but this is, uh, you know, from Microsoft that really compares most of their major services mm-hmm. and just shows them side by side. Uh, you know, what they are, especially like we mentioned, AWS isn't always named something that you can right. uh, be obviously you know, tell what it like is red, like Redshift, Yeah. Or S3 or yeah. Glacier, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, so if you, if you're out there looking and want to compare the two, uh, this is actually a really good resource. It even links you back, uh, to the Azure resource. They'll have links in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're out there needing to compare cloud services, this is a really good resource. Yeah. Well, if you're trying to figure out, yeah, how the services map or, you know, if you're inevitably converting from AWS over to Azure, then you can go out here. <laughs> you can go out here and, and figure out what uh, what services you need to use. Keep in mind, like some of them are direct. Um, you know, they're, they're basically like the same thing with a different name. Um, but I would say that there is like a, a huge, huge mismatch in a lot of these. I, I work with a lot of companies that are switching from from AWS. Um so, you know, what inevitably happens is it's like, well, there's, the, you know, Azure's missing feature X, Y, and Z, but it's like, oh yeah, but we also have one, two, and three. And they're like, oh, well, that's more important than X, Y, and Z, you know? So they, it doesn't mean that there's a, a one-to-one relationship mapping there. So just keep that in mind if you are um, switching either direction, I suppose. Um, okay. Arial, <laughs> Arial bold font, but this is Arial spelled different, Carl. Why is that? Yeah. 
It, it's spelled Ariel, like from the sky. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really cool is I actually missed this the first time I was on the site. So you'll go there and it'll say high exclamation point. That's actually text. And, mm-hmm. the, and these are pictures, pictographs. So you can actually go in there, put your cursor there and just start typing. And what this is, is it gives you a letter, but taken from Google Earth. So a lot of times formations in the earth, buildings, streets, rivers, etc., will make naturally occurring shapes that look just like letters. And you can type and it'll give you kind of a random picture that looks like that letter. And you can even narrow it down. So if you don't want to get everything from the world, you can go to your local area like Paris or Philadelphia. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of uh, U.S. centric ones, but they have Madrid, Manchester, Melbourne, you know, a few places from around the world. And you can actually type out in geographic formations. Yeah, this is this is really cool. Yeah. So I'm think, gonna, how do you switch your settings, though? Like I switch them and it doesn't update. Is that expected? I don't know what you're talking about. I can just start typing. Yeah. Oh, no, oh the, for world. Yeah. Now, if they'd like to drop down, like switch to aerial bold buildings or aerial bold province. Oh, I haven't played with that. I just oh. more changed the locations. Yeah, I don't know if it's broken or what. So, yeah, what Jason's saying is there's the thing where you can uh, limit it to just buildings or mm-hmm. suburbs or provinces. So, And actually, you know, so the, the coolest feature I didn't find until like minutes ago, which is if you click the map button, it will actually show you uh, where it got those from. Yes. Which is really, really cool. So yeah, it just says hi. If I push the button, <laughs> it's so cool. It shows exactly where on the map it found each of those things. That is just so cool. So you can find. Um, so what we'll have to do. So Carl went through and he typed out the MS Dev Show. So I'll have to put that in the show notes. But um, what we'll have to do is we'll have to find out where all those buildings are located, and uh, we'll have to go to all those locations. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, next one. Please scan my towel. I don't know what, what's going on, Carl. So th- this is what I just thought was just a really <laughs> cool hack. So somebody noticed that they were at a conference and at the hotel they were staying at, their towels had RFID chips in them. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like any good geek, they had you know an RFID scanner on them. And they also were able to tell that the chips used in RFID for their towels were the same as the ones that were in their conference badges. So what they did is they actually cloned their conference badge and wrote over their towel. And so they were able to use their their towel from their hotel room to check in anywhere <laughs> in the conference. <laughs> that is awesome. So does the how much is an RFID tag now? I mean, are these expensive towels? It must be like at a high-end hotel. You know, Depending upon the kind of chip that there are, they go anywhere from pennies to a few dollars. Are they trying to figure out if you're like stealing the towels or? I would imagine it's for inventory control. <laughs> That's crazy. Like, do they even still, do they, if you steal, I don't even know. Like if you steal hotels from a towel still, I mean, I know they say that they'll like, you know, give you some kind of penalty. Is that even true? I just remember the radio state, the local radio station was like pranking people by calling them and being like, we know you stole those towels <laughs> <laughs> and people were just like really upset over it. Yeah, well, you don't yeah. want to have the towel repo guy to show up at your house. right? <laughs> yeah. It's just like some <laughs> huge muscular dude. Give me back the towel. <laughs> oh boy. And then, and then you like hand him a towel and he scans. He's like, that's not the same towel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at the bottom of the bog, 
post. He said, no hotel towels have been permanently harmed and will be returned to my room with the correct UID rewritten back to them. Actually, that'd be hilarious. Like just go to like the pool and just like reprogram all of those to be like yours. (laughs) So they're like, yeah, this guest, he only got, you know, four towels, but he returned 50. (laughs) Or or you could have a history of who used your towel. If you use the towel of a famous person, right? (laughs) Yeah. Do they historize that? Yeah. That'd be, that'd be crazy. (laughs) Yeah. I don't want to know that. Yeah. Another creepy IOT thing, right? (laughs) Yeah. Danny DeVito used your towel four times last week. Oh, T T M I O T T T M I. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Pegasus mission. So here's what's going on. Um, I don't know. So Matt here has been like sending stuff into space. Um, I've been trying to keep up with this, what's going on. And I'm like, this is really cool. We, we got to talk about this. We got to, we got to hear more information about this. Cause it's kind of a, you know, like high orbit, um, IOT scenario. So like it has, it has all the sci-fi stuff and, and, and please tell me you're using RFID somewhere in here because then, you know, you'll have the trifecta. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to put a towel with RFID in it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. You, or you can just wipe it off with, with RFID or something. Uh, so maybe we, maybe we should back up a second though. We'll talk about Pegasus mission in just a second, but I guess first, like what do you do at Microsoft that you get to, you know, do cool stuff like this? Well, um, well, this is actually, um, <laughs> I would say, uh, spare time stuff, and it's been okay. it's been going on for a very, very, very long period of time, uh, and it's kind of manifested itself in in this. But uh, I'm a, I'm a technical evangelist, and I have um, several. Um, ISV partners that we work with to help them uh, get their products to market. That, that's my day job. This th- yeah. this is not my day job, uh, <laughs> but it's 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 uh, kind of been something that's got a lot of momentum behind it, especially right now. Yeah. So you know, Jason, you know, hinted a little bit. You know, we're talking about space. We're talking about really cool things. Uh, what exactly is the Pegasus mission? Well, the, the Pegasus mission is an idea that Mark Nichols and I came up with back in 2004, and we had this uh, experimental real-time technology, and we wanted to use it in unique and interesting experiments where, where users became participants in the experiment, kind of experimental, uh, experimental research. Um, mm-hmm. So when users become participants in something interesting, even a risky experiment, it helps them kind of leverage their imagination to come up with other innovative ideas. And and the feedback that we've received has absolutely confirms that's exactly what's happening right now. Okay. So what so what were the, the goals for this? Like I'm looking at so I'm at PegasusMission.io and I'm sure Carl will have that in the in the show notes. But like I'm seeing I, I don't think it, it's not obviously not live right now, but there's like a whole bunch of live telemetry and, and all this other information there. So so like what were what were the goals for, for this project? Like, what, what were you trying to do? Right. So the Pegasus mission was all about kind of a challenging assumptions about what was p- possible and performing STEM research and, and exposing it in a way where people could participate in every mission. Mm-hmm. So we take this, uh, we take these STEM fields and we kind of bring them down to a level that's compelling and interesting for people through these kind of risky missions. An example, the near space experience with the high altitude balloon. And, and it's that participation to the users that's really critical to our success. Um, 
And, 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 and ironically, this is a kind of the same mechanism that was pioneered and mastered by Jacques Cousteau. Uh, watching something, but yet there's actually research being done on the other side of it. And when people are participants, and they get they get kind of thrilled by this, and their imaginations kind of start to run wild, and they start to challenge assumptions about what they think is possible. And uh, this is this really amazing because we're really thrilled that we're we're acting like some type of catalyst for this right now by what we're doing mm -hmm. um and, and kind of the it's kind of occurred you know it wasn't like an intentional goal but the Pegasus mission has actually it been again inspiring people and uh and it's it's not just people who do science; it's people who don't have anything to do with science, and, and educators, and and of, and of course scientists and managers, and 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 people at uh, institutions that I wouldn't have believed would have ever have contacted me, right? And and that's really kind of the ultimate compliment. Um, I mean, we're we're kind of we're kind of becoming some like a typhoid Mary of uh, experiential um, STEM research right now, and it's just infecting people with the passion to explore and and do things that hadn't been done before, and and that's kind of you know kind of the point of it is you you go out there and you take risk and you do things that hadn't been done before, and and people really gravitate to that, and and that actually helps us test the uh, experimental technology by having users. So what what exactly are we talking about here? Is this just like a weather balloon, a Raspberry Pi, and a few cell phones, or you know, can you can you walk us through it? Yeah. So it, 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 it's the, the the high altitude balloon is just the manifestation of of something else. And you know, I've been working on a, a single question for almost ten years now: Why doesn't the digital world act like the physical world? And that turns about to be a very deep and a very deep question. Um, and the objective here is to break down the barriers between the natural, physical, and digital world so that we have consistency from what we already know from science and engineering, applied mathematics. Um, and, and when you're working for something, you know, for almost a decade and mostly in secret, you, you get heavily invested, you even get emotionally invested. Um, and I look, at, I look at what we're trying to do is basically break down those barriers um, so that behaviors between you and I in the natural world and what happens in the digital world are, are identical in terms of how the theories from the complexity sciences work. And that breaks down a whole generation of new technology that can be developed to do incredibly interesting things that have never been done before. Um, and, and all that seems really, you know, high, highbrow and all that kind of stuff. But the reality of it is, is that by taking this high altitude balloon, we are integrating um, not just the telemetry, but communications to and from that balloon from literally everywhere in the world. Users from all over the world can communicate to a high altitude balloon in, in just a, a few milliseconds. Uh, and they can receive the data. So they're, they're actually seeing, in North America, for example, you're actually seeing the telemetry from 20 miles in the upper atmosphere in less than 20 milliseconds from when it happens. Um, that's really and, and that's like a total game changer when you start to think about, you know, can you do this faster than sound on land or from two miles below the surface of the ocean? All those things are now possible because we have this highly reactive um, uh, experimental technology that helps us integrate things that we, we never could do this before. Yeah. Um, 
And, and that also goes to the basis of intelligence. So if you think about things that aren't uh, highly powerful in terms of their computability, you can actually move their brain off into like the cloud where there's like almost infinite compute and take things that never could be intelligent and make them highly intelligent. Yeah, I figured there had to be a couple of good cloud jokes in here, by the way, because, you know, you're <laughs> you're in a weather balloon that's like right next to the cloud, right? Well, we're way, way above the clouds, right? So, <laughs> you're above the cloud. Yeah, yeah we're, normally we're below the clouds. We're like 80,000 so. so feet above the clouds. That's right? why your latency is so good, because you're near the clouds. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so we understand kind of the high-level motivation behind this, and that's, that's pretty cool that it's more than like, hey, we're just we're launching a balloon and it's got some cool stuff on it. Um, but – uh, you know, we did sort of back into that, but I, I wanted to, to start like where this thing began. I mean, so you guys had this idea and then you, you came up with this idea specifically for Pegasus one. So what was Pegasus one? Yeah. So Pegasus one is kind of a funny story because we, we had worked with Microsoft research for a period of time in, in working with uh, some of the technology they had, which was like absolutely critical to getting our latency down in linear scale and all this kind of good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And we had developed it, and we were going to do a session at TechReady, an internal Microsoft conference. And we were trying to come up with a way to demonstrate um, real-time uh, distributed and open systems. And, 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 and when you start thinking about it, it looks like a security demo, right? Like, uh, access denied. Great. Access enabled. Okay, wonderful, right? It's not too interesting. Like, watching a light come on really quick from when you hit the keyboard or something, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, so on November 7th, 2014, I sent an email to Mark Nicholson, and it just literally said in the subject line, must do this in a link. <laughs> and he sent back an email and said, this is, this is really cool. we got to do it. And so Mark built the payload for Pegasus 1, and we actually flew it in 82 days after after we had the idea from like zero to to flying in pegasus one we delivered a session on tuesday and said to the people in the session tomorrow we're going to go fly this high altitude balloon and you can participate <laughs> by watching it happen live you can watch it you know it'll be on a map it'll be updating live and you'll see the telemetry etc cetera, etc cetera, on the website and we yeah. did that the next day and people saw it and they were just like well that's just insane i wonder how they did this right yeah of course we had told them the day before but they still couldn't remember uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's not i mean it, it it just makes it real when you see this thing like in real life i'm right. sure so the telemetry like the from the atmospheric sciences perspective the telemetry is actually leaving the craft and so we're capturing it not only on the ground we're capturing it in the cloud and what happened to Pegasus One is we do we do this halo drop where we come down really 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 fast, and then right before we get to the ground we open a big parachute and slow it down. And on the way down, about ten thousand feet after we started coming down, the GPS cut out, <laughs> and and the backup GPS never worked. As soon as we launched it, it never worked. So we had like zero zero for latitude <laughs> longitude, and. And the cloud ceiling was about a thousand feet, and we were out in this field in the middle of Washington State with the low yeah, cloud cover, trying to see this thing pierce the clouds because you know we we, we we didn't know where it was. We were you know within a mile or so of it from the forecast, and we never saw it land. But yeah. it turned out that three days later, after I got back from Seattle, I was looking over the telemetry because we were very depressed. We didn't get the craft back, and. Uh, 
26 seconds before it lands, the, the GPS comes back online. <laughs> and it, Just in the nick of time. And it told us exactly where it was. And Mark went out there a couple of days later out in this wheat field in the middle of Washington State, and it's just sitting there upright, ready to be picked up. And uh, awesome. So if we wouldn't have... If we didn't have that communications technology that was that was taking the infra, the telemetry off the craft, we never would have found it. So yeah. so that real time technology actually was critical to actually finding the craft. But what what happened was that all the technology actually worked, but we didn't have this GoPro camera on the top of it, this thing that had nothing to do with the experiment, right? Yeah. When we got that back and we could publish a photograph of the curvature of the Earth, the end of the visible atmosphere, and the blackness of space in the middle of the day with the sun sitting on it, it just went viral. Yeah. So it was, it was, that was the, one of the big lessons learned was that the video and the, the photographs are, are what's really attractive to people. The, the science of it is just a, a way to deliver an experience, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the picture shows like, hey, we were in space. Respect this, <laughs> and and it and it. I mean, like that's just that's just instant credibility when you th- say this. And I think I think technically you were in near space or something like that. But I don't know. You look at the picture like you were in space. You know, yeah. between between you and me, like you know, and it, it's an absolutely hostile environment up there. Absolutely yeah. hostile. And and the fact that you can run something up into that environment for a very long period of time and be able to communicate with it tells you that that's a lot harder than doing something on the ground. Yeah. Uh, and um, we really think that kind of that's kind of like an exclamation point on this, right? That this is totally possible from doing it, um, uh, you know, quite literally 80, 70,000 miles above where an airplane can fly. Yeah. Um, and, and all that stuff, and like I said, it's all risky because, I mean, you're, the environment's absolutely hostile and a lot of things can go wrong. Yeah, I mean, you had to think there was like a, you know, 80% chance this thing was just never coming back, right? Yeah. Uh, and we, we, we didn't, you know, all these, the flight operations, we have to communicate to the balloon to do, to do flight ops, right? We have to, we have to uh, release the delivery system that's cut off the balloon. We have to come down. We have to open a big parachute at low, uh, low altitude. All these things have to happen. Yeah. Uh, and they have to happen in real time. And it's an exclamation point. Um, and the first time you do it, you can do it on the ground all you want to, but you literally can't test the thing at 1% atmosphere and minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit. You just, you just can't test that. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of have to go do it. And uh, we were fortunate enough to get it back, and I think, um, I, I think the technology proved itself out in, the, in a certain sense. By it, without it, we wouldn't have been able to find it and get that picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Iron Man had to had to make special modifications for the cold up there, <laughs> if I remember correctly. <laughs> no, you're right. I I can't imagine how hostile that is. Are they, I mean, is it windy up there too? I mean, it's got to be. What it's so it's freezing cold. I mean, are there just crazy currents up there? Well, yeah, we, we got lucky in Pegasus One because we had some great wind shear, and so so it would it would fly west, and then it'd get into another layer of the atmosphere and fly east, and uh, okay. <laughs> and, it's, and so the, it sort of averaged out. Yeah, so it didn't go that far, right? When it's all said and done, but the uh, 
But the, depending on what day, and, it, and it's very temperamental on a day-to-day basis, the kind of winds you get, whether you have any wind shear or not, uh, and the velocity of the winds. We actually hit a 100-mile-per-hour wind up up uh, in Pegasus 1, and it threw it, wow. it threw it way faster than you can drive to keep up with it yeah. um, in, a, in the opposite direction. Um, so we, we do a lot of work, and, uh, and we're like what we're doing for Pegasus 2, it, it, it has a lot to do with where you're going to do it and, and your logistics because if you don't have good cellular communications, you can't do it at all because we use the, uh, the cellular signals to, uh, to get the information back into the cloud and back down. Infragistics, Ultimate UX and UI Tools, and Enterprise Mobility Solutions, SharePlus and Report Plus, enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics' Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. So speaking of Pegasus 2, since you brought that up, can you tell us what that is, how it's different, and kind of what the status of it is at the moment? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Pegasus 2... Pegasus 2 is like Pegasus 1 on steroids. Um, it's, uh, we learned about the video, so we have like um, five video cameras on it. Uh, we actually have live video. So we're actually transmitting a video signal down to the ground uh, and then back up into Azure Media Services, and you'll, you'll see what actually, you'll see an eye in the sky with that. Um, uh, the manufacturers can't tell us exactly how how well that's going to work, other than the fact that theoretically it should work well. <laughs> um, but the number of instruments on it and the, the scientific package is, is quite large. Uh, there's a, uh, a lot of sensors on it. We, we've added UV rays. We've added um, uh, radiation, uh, lots of temperature sensors, air pressure. Um, it, it's just completely packed with that. Um, yeah. and, we, and we added satellite communications. We actually use the Iridium satellites now to communicate uh, location as the backup backup location system. Um, so we have SATCOM on it, um, two GPSs. Uh, but the user experience, the user experience really changed. So when we started doing Pegasus 2, <clears throat> we asked... Uh, a bunch of Microsoft FTAs, if they'd be interested in going to near space, and they, they came in droves and said, yes, 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 how can I help? So we, we built the website, which you, you've seen as uh, PegasusMission.io, uh, and, and that actually will display video and some of the telemetry. Um, but we also built phone apps for iOS, Android, and Windows for, for mobile applications that people can install from anywhere. And 
those those app, those mobile applications also get the telemetry and the mapping of the chase vehicle and the balloon in real time. It, it gets all that. But the mobile apps can also send a 40-character message to the craft in flight. And we have a video display um, on the outside of the actual payload and six inches away from that is a camera and your message will be displayed on that video display which you can see your message and the background of near space behind it and uh, we actually uh, video that so we oh, have, that's so cool. and, and it goes like right into the flight record. So, so, so we can say hello from the MS Dev Show from space. <laughs> you, you absolutely can do that, and and yeah. we, we also run it through a third party SaaS service that actually uh, checks it for profanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I think we can control ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so be, At least I can. You be careful. I can't with speak that, for right? Carl. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but but there's a there's a whole bunch of integrated parts to it in Pegasus two that that weren't there in Pegasus one. So there's obviously the user experience, but we also um, are, are storing data in different formats and. Um, and we're, we're using a lot of third-party tools. We're integrated with Twilio. The craft, uh, as it makes flight milestones, it will send you text messages to your phone if you sign up for flight notifications on the website. Yeah, um, I did that. And uh, you, and it also uh, does some stuff with the SATCOM, and every five minutes it sends Mark and I a send grid message email that tells us the location of the satellite so we don't have to look it up. It's just sitting there on our phone. Um, so, well, the uh, one question on the app real quick, does it support notifications then to tell me when you guys are doing this? I mean, I, I signed up for the text messages, so obviously get a text message when that happens, right? Yeah. So as soon as it launches, uh, you'll get a text message that says we launched, and, and that'll okay. kind of direct you to either your phone app or your or the website to, to watch what's going on, right? Okay. Um, so that's kind of an alert. And so we suggest people sign up for flight notifications because if we're late with a launch or something like that, which is, you know, can absolutely happen, at least you know when the flight's happening so you can kind of tune in. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to watch this. This is really cool. Okay, so I got the app. I got the website bookmarked. I, th- I think I'm all set. You're ready. Yes, I'm ready. So, yeah, so all it takes is uh, going to an app store and, and typing in Pegasus Mission, and there's a phone app for you, right, or, yep. or any mobile app. So, so that's, what it, that's what it's really all about. At the end of the day, it's about this experience, but at the same time, uh, we're learning a great deal about uh, the complexity of putting together uh, these systems and integrating it with uh, other technologies. So there's, <clears throat> there's no store and forward technology built into, in, into the experimental technology. So when it gets stored in Document DB or when it gets stored in Blob Storage or when it gets sent to Event Hub, which basically gets surfaced through Power BI and ASA, all that's happening at the same time as when you receive it on your phone. So it doesn't, it doesn't impede the latency uh, for the user. All this happens completely um, in parallel. So we, that gives us this great power to distribute things to passively to web services or actively to a phone connected or, or website or whatever we want to do. Um, and, and that's very empowering because these systems become highly integrated and they can make decisions. We actually have in the West Coast data center, uh, we have a couple of web jobs running. They're running calculations on the telemetry to decide when to open the parachute. So if they don't happen immediately, uh, we just broke something that costs as much as a car. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> wow. Actually, that's a good question. I mean, wh- where did the where did the funding for this come from? I mean, is this all paid for with from Microsoft Research? Well, it came from Mark and I's uh, light pocket right now. Uh, <laughs> so that was probably about seventy five percent of it. And okay. MS, MSR did uh, give us some funding. They were very very kind because they've been partners the entire time, and they did yeah. give us some funding, uh, which helped us uh, acquire some of the some of the uh, components for it. Um, and uh, and recently. Uh, we got some additional funding from the business group to help us with the travel expenses and, and things, which is actually quite considerable, um, to go do a lot. So we're very pleased to to not have to be, um, you know, buying two cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very cool. So what what kind of real-time information are, are you collecting and broadcasting through these apps and to yourselves in the cloud? Well, we... So let's see. So we get some of the atmospheric side. Uh, we get um, we get atmospheric pressure, obviously, which is very important because it's more accurate in terms of your altitude than getting a GPS altitude, uh, which mm-hmm. doesn't update as quick. So atmospheric oh, that's pressure. Okay. Um, well, the pressure temperature. We actually calculate what the temperature should be, and then we measure the inside temperature of the craft. Which, uh, of course, we don't want it to freeze, or we'd have to cut it down and come down because it would it would literally would freeze if it wasn't heated. Um, yeah. And we measure the outside temperature, so we can actually see what the atmospheric conditions are. Um, we do some internal things. Well, and also we measure radiation. So we got a Geiger counter on it that's measuring the radiation, which should go up as you get uh, closer to the sun. Um, and we also are doing the same thing with UV radiation. So we can measure UV rays as we go up. And, and once again, that should actually climb as we go up. And we can compare that to any kind of expectations. Um, internally, uh, we're measuring things with our battery levels. Uh, we're measuring... Um, we have an accelerometer, which actually is very useful on your descent. <laughs> very useful yeah. on your descent. Um, a gyroscope, a magnetometer. So all those are 3D type of uh, information. Uh, the strength of the radio and, of course, the GPS signals, the latitude, the longitude, how many yep. satellites you're connected to, your ground speed, your direction, um, whether your GPS has a lock or not. Um we measure the vertical speed, uh, which does change, ironically, because the, because the balloon actually is, is growing. The balloon actually will grow to 35 feet in diameter. Um, oh, wow. And the, the pressure goes down on the outside. Right. So your, so your coefficient of drag changes, but at the same time, your buoyancy is changing because the density of the atmosphere is, is going down as you're going up. Right. Um, and and that, that's, every, that's actually an incredibly difficult calculation to make because uh, all these things are changing continuously. Um, and we, we also have LEDs on it now, so we can activate the LEDs on, on descent, and that makes it easier to pick it up in the sky. Um, okay. There's a whole bunch of things like whether the servo's on or off, whether the parachute's been deployed, whether the balloon's been released. Um, you know, your deployment altitude, and then there are timers in there in case we happen to make some horrifically bad mistake and get a floater, uh, which means the balloon the balloon wouldn't burst, and that would be the, which is something we don't want to do. If we had, had a floater and we couldn't communicate with the craft, we need it to cut down by itself and come down. Yeah. So yeah. There's, a, there's a whole lot of backup systems involved, but we also know the ground distance from where we started 
and the ground distance between the launch site and the chase vehicle. So we, we have kind of a 3D view of, of the distance from the launch site, the distance from the craft and the chase vehicle, and the distance between the launch site and the chase vehicle. And we actually display that on the, uh, on the maps for uh, users yeah. too. Yeah, I saw that in the mobile app. I was asking for permission of the GPS to show that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's um, and and we have our own field gateways that that receive the signal from the ground units and send up up to the cloud, and we visualize all that data on the ground units, as well as um, as well as the location, and we have a Bing map on the on the. Uh, the field gateway so that we can actually maybe we can actually chase it without having to go to a website or something uh, so okay. it's not dependent on um, on, on you know, any internet connection um, but but interestingly enough those field gateways which are at the launch site where we have a, a, a fixed uh, directional antenna and the mobile unit the chase vehicle um, where we have an omnidirectional antenna that they can't see each other's data. So we have a mission control center that's capable of executing commands, and it actually can visualize the data coming from both ground units. And so so they're very important to us because they're the only ones that can see everything. And And our remote mission control guys are just absolute rock stars. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, so one thing I want to walk through too. So the, the actual hardware, for the, you know, the, all these different sensors, is that something like off the shelf or did you guys build your own board? Like, what does that look like? Well, the, the PCB is custom. Uh, so okay. it's kind of, it's kind of, it, it's complicated, <laughs> right? But the, okay. uh, but it's got a couple of raspberry Pis on it. It's got quite okay. a few Arduinos on it and a whole bunch of sensors connected to all that. Um, okay. So, so it's, it's Mark Nichols built the uh, built the craft, and and it's incredibly complicated. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and there's a lot of radios in there too, and so interference from radio signals. We've actually had that happen before, um, okay. and so we have to we field tested it uh, recently, like a couple of days ago, and uh, so we had to make sure that we weren't getting any inter- interference from the radio signals because there's there's a lot of radio signal coming out of that box. Mm-hmm. And then I just wanted to kind of make sure I understood the stack. So you got those boards in there, and then those are communicating via cellular to the ground, right? But no, there's and a radio which, signal. Oh, okay. So it's like a okay. So it's a like a um, is that proprietary? Or are you guys using some kind of regular protocol for that? Yeah, it's just a 900 megahertz, uh, 900 megahertz radio, oh, okay. so it's the, radio uh, yeah, signal. The, okay. And so the okay. same the same unit in the craft exists on the ground station to communicate. So that's like actually okay. really easy. That makes sense with what you said before. Okay, so that signal comes down, and then you use cellular to get that into into the cloud, you said? Uh, that signal comes down, and then through a serial port, it goes into a PC that's running the software for the field gateway. Okay. And the, the field gateway takes the telemetry, actually takes the telemetry from the craft, also the ground unit that's associated yep. with, like where is, where, where is the chase vehicle, right? Um, mm-hmm. It takes that telemetry, and then from there, it actually sends it up to our operational technology in the cloud, in the Microsoft ah, cloud, okay. and, and it... And it from there, it gets processed 
to the users and a lot of other places. Yeah. So you mentioned there it gets ingested using event hubs. It goes through stream analytics. It can go to a Power BI dashboard and go to all these other different places. Right, right. So the okay. so the operational technology in the back end, uh, which is which uh, Project Orleans is a huge part of that, right? That really enables mm-hmm. all this to happen with uh, with scale and low latency. It it mm-hmm. will connect to a lot of different things, right? So for the the product group that does Azure Data Factory, they wanted to actually enable this for Power BI. And okay. they said they said I said, Well what do you need? And they said, well, can you put the information in an event hub? And I said, not a problem. And so yeah. in, you know in five seconds later they were you know they were getting telemetry from their their uh, event hub uh, stream analytics power BI stack. Yeah. Uh, which was really easy for us to do because we could fork it to to a lot of different sources. Um, so, so that's kind of how it works. And when you send something back, it's a symmetrical architecture, so you can send it back the other way, and there's nothing special that happens on the field gateway. It just receives the information, and when it does, it will forward it to the uh, forward it to the craft. Okay, so, that makes sense. Okay, so you can yeah, get a I, website at Mission Control and say release balloon, and it will mm-hmm. leave that website, go through the operational technology, the field gateway, and up to the craft, and the balloon cuts off. Very cool. Yeah, I wanted to understand how all those connections were made, and then um, uh, Pegasus too. So, what is you know about when should I look for that launch? Ah. Funny you should mention that. Okay. <laughs> so we live on the MS Dev Show. No. <laughs> so right now we are looking for a break in the weather. Um, okay. So as soon as we get a break in the weather, uh, we're going to open a launch window, uh, assuming that it doesn't conflict with our schedules and all the things that can happen with that. Right, our regular day job. Um, as soon as we get a launch window, we will. We will go fly that thing with uh, with our partners at Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Um, okay. So any day now, uh, ex- expect a launch window if if in fact the seven day forecast only uh, winds um, cooperates. Right now they're not cooperating. Okay. Well, in any case, I will be watching that. So. Um, yeah, we'll publish this episode in a couple of days. So for our listeners, yeah, definitely keep watching because you're, it's going to be real close to when you're listening to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you too, was just kind of high level. If there, if there was any like really big lessons that you learned, I mean, obviously going through that whole stack and trying to hook things together. I mean, you had to learn a ton of stuff, but is there anything that kind of surprised you, you know, any, any like big lessons that, that people might not think of immediately that you wanted to mention? Yeah. Um, one of the things I think we, we learned is that you need to really coordinate all these activities. These things come together at like a pinpoint to do a launch. Um, and so you really need to have enough people there to handle a lot of discrete tasks. They may not be complicated tasks at all, but Mark and I are very busy multitasking. We're constantly multitasking. And, and that really takes a toll <clears throat> on you with the you know kind of the anxiety that comes from a launch um and i i think i've actually experienced some t3 moments during the last two launch attempts right um forgetfulness um but you do need a lot of people to manage these discrete tasks and um and kind of get things together because uh, even regardless of how good your checklists are 
um, there's you can just get distracted by by little things like oh I need to do a tweet right now and you you get distracted and go do that and you get behind on something else um, but doing it yourself um, you know we're, we did not build anything with Pegasus one or two as something to, the, to, to do for yourself right it was about testing a whole bunch of different things uh, in a really complex experiment but if you want to build a hab put some sensors on it and a GoPro camera and an APRS system something that pretty much anybody can do you, you can fly it and you can recover it uh, people can do that okay. and they can go get their picture of near space. Uh, and, and, cool. I, and I would encourage that, that was people one of my it. questions. Yeah, uh, I, I would absolutely encourage people to do that. And when they mm-hmm. when they get that picture of the edge of the visible atmosphere and the curvature of the Earth and the blackness of space during the middle of the day, um, it it really impacts people in a very positive way. That that's even possible to do. And uh, I would I would absolutely encourage people to do that. And I know a lot of uh, like high school projects have been doing that. And uh, and it's yeah. it's absolutely possible. You can even put a phone in there and go find it, even though that's actually illegal. <laughs> really? Why is that? Remember when you, last time you were an airplane? They said, "Please cut off your cellular phone." Yeah. This the same rules apply at those altitudes. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I okay. I always thought they were afraid of the. Uh, the EM signals, you know, affecting the plane or something. I guess you could have the same thing on a, on a weather balloon, right? It could mess up your electronics. Yeah. People have, people do have done people, it I guess. and people have done it and they've been successful. Of course you have to risk your phone to do it, but <laughs> well, yeah. And I, so I had a, I had a friend of a friend once that left their cell phone on, on a plane and, and it turned out it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, it, it's just kind of one of those believed. things. I mean, I think for for like a high school project, you could put a couple of a couple of easy to do sensors in it, and just capture it on board telemetry. Um, yeah, go get you a relatively inexpensive balloon because it wouldn't weigh much, and yeah. um, and and get you a system in there for a location so you could find it. You could go fl- yeah. fly that with decent weather conditions and recover it, and and you would have incredible video. Yeah, um, that that's. You know, relatively inexpensive to go to go get. You can even put a camera in there. You can go buy a cheap yeah. used camera and use it. Um, yeah, like an off-brand GoPro or something. Yeah, pretty inexpensive. Yeah. So it's a good it's it's a it's a good garage project from that you know from that perspective. Uh, we we just yeah. we just had a lot more to do, um, and we we just kind of chose that um, that risky hostile environment to do it in. Um, yeah. But there but. but the sidebar of this is there are a lot of other things to do other than high altitude balloon for these with this type of technology, yeah. um, and, and and you know we're working right now on faster than sound on land. Uh, we got something started for uh, mapping the ocean floor two miles below the surface, um, and, and so that you don't have to recover something that's in you know down at some ridiculous pressure in the ocean to get that information but, but those are long term that those things are really multi year long term projects that, are, that would never move very quickly yeah that's really cool though um, anything else you wanted to mention on the projects that you know anything that we didn't cover well i, I think the, uh, the, the 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 thing to kind of get out of this is mm-hmm. that um, you know like i said i've been working on it 10 years trying to answer a single question. And I think people yeah. p- people should believe that that's possible, you know, that they, they really need to challenge the assumptions about what's possible and think about doing things, and you never know where you're going to end up. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And you, you might walk into something very interesting and unique just from trying to answer a question as opposed to looking for a problem to solve. Just try to answer a question. I assure you, you'll find more problems than you ever thought about. <laughs> Yeah. What, what's cool to me is all this technology, like how attainable it's getting, you know, it, it even with, without getting like super sophisticated, um, I guess, I guess our definition of that probably keeps changing. Cause I guess this would be this whole project I think is in, in one aspect is super sophisticated. I mean, if you would go back 50 years, they would just, you know, that you would just blow them away that, you, you know, just like a, a person off the street could, could put something like this together. Uh, but yeah, all this stuff is more attainable. I mean, I was playing around with a Raspberry Pi today with a, with a Fez board and a couple lines of code, you know, hitting F5 in Visual Studio, stepping through the code and like making it do things and you control motors and lights and, you know, it's just, and, and then I even think about like, um, you know, quadcopter technology and, and how that's just exploded in the last few years and, uh, you know, autonomous and how they're able to avoid obstacles and, you know, so for, um, you know, average people that just have, you know, you know, if you, if you are listening to this, you're, you're above average, but, um, I mean, if you're, if you're listening and you, you have, you know, any desire to do this, if you have the passion to do it, like it's totally possible. And I think that's, what's really cool about it. Yeah. And I think what, what, what we're trying to, trying to build in a, in a, in an abstract sense is so that you can take a high altitude balloon or a website or anything else that you can make. And it doesn't matter where it is. It can still communicate with other parties, other external system actors in real time. And, and we're, we're talking just a few milliseconds, right? So yeah. it doesn't really have anything to do with a, a balloon. It has to do with just communicating because once you open a channel of protocol, you're there, right? So yeah. so people could come up with really interesting scenarios that don't have anything to do with necessarily near space. Um, they could t- come up with scenarios that have to do with space or... <laughs> Or a remote vehicle in the in in the ocean, or something in their own home. It, it doesn't make any difference to the technology that enables it, but you could just configure things that you haven't ever thought of before to 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 have like these real time interactions, and that's really where this all is going in terms of trying to discover what all that means and what you could do with it. And we just put an emphasis on a user experience in a uh, in an interesting experiment. Very cool, very cool. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. And uh, for special effect, I'm going to do it with my dogs barking in the background. Uh, so this week we have... Uh, SQL Server on Linux. And yes, you heard that correctly. So this this broke, I think, during uh, the recording of our last episode, so we didn't get to cover it. But uh, this is pretty cool. So if you want to run, you know, SQL Server in a container or if you have, you know, a Linux environment, you know, uh, you have just primarily Linux machines and you don't have any Windows machines or maybe you have some other motivation for running SQL Server on top of Linux, uh, that is now possible. There's, I think it's in private preview, um, and I think it's scheduled, you know, like sometime next year to go GA and, and basically allow everybody to, uh, to start using this. So, um, it's kind of interesting. I know it's not, it's not like everything in SQL. It's obviously not, uh, like the management tools and stuff like that, but it's still the, the core of SQL server, which runs some of the largest databases in the world. Um, and it's, um, considered one of the most secure databases and in by just about every imaginable metric, it's a really, really awesome, uh, database. 
Um, so this is this is pretty exciting because this this will get people to look at it that um, uh, might have discounted it before. So it's pretty exciting. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And Carl, what do we have for the dev tip of the week? So this isn't a direct dev tip of the week, but it's for developers. So if you have an app in the Windows Store, uh, there is now available for you to get affiliate link, uh, make affiliate link money off of that. So you can uh, now uh, create links that uh, once people use them to, you know, make a purchase, in-app purchase, um, and, and so forth, you can get up to you know like five to seven percent extra uh, cash off those sales. Okay, I like more cash. So I know a lot of us out there have you know a, a few uh, apps in the store, and it's just another way to you know you bump up your payout. Very cool. Okay, Matt, we play a game, and I have to. I'm stalling because I get it out of my drawer here. Uh, we play a game on this show. What I need you to do is pick a number between one and four. Three. Okay. Oh, would you, <laughs> would you rather sleep on the sidewalk for seven nights straight during normal weather or for one night while it rains? I think we've had this before, but it's a good one. One. One night in the rain. One night in the rain. Yeah, I agree. I guess it doesn't say the temperature, so. The the first one at least says normal weather. <laughs> it's like a prisoner's dilemma. Whatever's question, normal. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, plus these are these are just cruel because, you know, can you imagine, yeah, somebody wants to torture you, so they, they give you these options and then they, you know, then they just add in like, oh, and by the way, you know. Uh, it's, you know, minus 50 degrees. Well, well, I guess it wouldn't be raining. (laughs) I don't know. It's 32 degrees, 33 degrees. Okay, Carl, pick a number. I'll take four. Four. Uh, this is exactly, okay, hold on. Let me pick a different card because that's exactly the question we had last week. A little too close to home. Okay. Would you rather live your life without any taste buds? Did we just do this? Yeah, we just did that one. Okay, that's another one. Okay, hang on. I must, I think I'm, I think I'm pulling from the uh, discard pile. Okay. (laughs) Let's try this one more time. Would you rather be forced to drink every, everything like a dog licking it up with your tongue or be forced to eat all your food without using any types of forks, spoons, or knives? I do not have the same tongue as a dog, so I will go eating without utensils because I'm pretty good at that already. <laughs> I was going to say, that's probably how it happens today anyway, right, Carl? <laughs> Who uses utensils, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got to clean them when you use them. I know. It's just it's more dishes. Like, there's really no upside. <laughs> so, And then you can, you can optimize around things like pizza where you don't need them anyway. Okay, so uh, where can people find you, Matt? It looks like Carl's got lots of links for the show notes, but where is the the best people to find or best way to find you and more information about the Pegasus Mission? Uh, at www.pegasusmission.io, okay. and our Twitter feed is at Pegasus Mission. Okay, that sounds great. Where can people find you, Carl? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay, and you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash techie. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about Pegasus Mission. This is really cool. And I am going to, you know, I, I've already downloaded the app. I'm going to I'm gonna watch this whenever this launches because I think this is cool. And we're going to, Carl and I are going to do our best to get an MS Dev Show message in there. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're really counting on that to, get the, to spread the word about the show. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time and inviting me on your show. Thank you very much. <laughs>